investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 61 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is Friday, April 3rd, 2020. I have a number of interesting things to talk about. This week, we're in the midst of the whole coronavirus market panic. I mean, we've had uh, a bit less volatility. The VIX, the fear index, has come down from its peak of 85, an all-time record, to about 50, which is still extreme, but we're not getting those plus or minus 5%, 10% up and down moves in the market. Lately in March, it was mostly down. However, these days we're back to kind of 2 to 3%, which is still extreme historically, but it seems much less extreme given what we went through in March. But nonetheless, we're not here to talk today about macro issues, which we've really been focused on those broader macroeconomic trends. We're more so talking this episode, you know, what the coronavirus panic, uh, this whole bear market pandemic is having on specific companies. So we're talking about corporate actions off the top, T-Mobile, the merger with Sprint, a $30 billion deal. It finally closed after two billion, or sorry, after two years, a $30 billion deal. We're going to chat about why this transaction was so important and really what it signifies for the M&A market in the current environment. SoftBank, we're going to chat about them and WeWorks, one of our favorite companies to chat about, SoftBank. They actually officially pulled a $3 billion tender offer for WeWork shares. Why did they renege on the deal? Hostile deal, Xerox ended its hostile pursuit of rival HP. Did this acquisition ever stand a chance? We're going to talk about the implications of the, the, that one there. And lastly, Whiting Petroleum, they filed for bankruptcy. It's the first insolvency of the oil price crash. Is this the first domino to fall? And should we expect this to happen more and more in the oil market, given what's happened with the oil price crash. But nonetheless, some good news. T-Mobile, they closed their landmark acquisition of rival Sprint, $30 billion deal, which was initially announced in April 2018. Took them quite a bit longer to actually close this deal, and they finally closed it, which is super positive. We've spoken a lot about merger arbitrage over the past month and how spreads are ultra wide. Many market participants pricing in a ton of deals breaking at one point in mid-March. The merger arbitrage market was pricing in nearly 50% of deals falling apart. But we look at the scoreboard over the past kind of five weeks, what has actually happened in in the M&A space, and T-Mobile represents one of this, is deals have closed. We look, 19 deals in the US, seven deals in Canada have closed. So that's 26 deals in North American, 26 public M&A transactions to have closed uh, since February 28th. So deals keep getting announced, deals keep getting closed. So certainly it's slowed down on the announcement side, but existing deals continue to close. We haven't seen any deals officially break aside from this Xerox HP 
hostile deal, which we're going to talk about uh, further in this episode. But nonetheless, on this T-Mobile Sprint deal, it really represents a major consolidation in the U.S. mobile carrier sector. It brought four competitors to three, which previously uh, investors thought would be impossible. Sprint and T-Mobile have tried to do this deal back since 2013, but they called it off back then because the Obama administration was really against that consolidation from an antitrust perspective. But in the more business-friendly Republican administration under President Trump, clearly they're able to get it done as it just closed. Other interesting dynamics, if we rewind just a couple months back to February, this deal was really left for dead by investors until it was surprisingly approved by the court. A real long shot deal. I remember looking at looking at the odds back then. The market was really pricing in only a 30% chance it'd be successful. Rightly or wrongly, it did get done and ARBs were really, really, um, at least arbitragers that were long, very rewarded as Sprint stock effectively doubled on this positive court decision. The pro forma entity, once T-Mobile integrates Sprint, they'll have about 100 million customers, making them a strong competitor to industry leaders, number one, AT&T, and number two, Verizon. The other interesting aspect of this transaction I wanted to mention is it was an all-share deal, but T-Mobile did issue $19 billion in bonds to fund this merger, probably for the repurchase of Sprint's debt, etc. Now, bankers from Barclays, Deutsche Bank, Goldman, on this $19 billion deal, they actually received $65 billion in orders, so massively oversubscribed. It gives you a sense that uh, credit markets are really opening up what, what we saw just recently was the Fed coming into the space to start buying corporate bond ETFs, really establishing a floor on that market after the bottom fell out in March. The bottom effectively fell out of every market in March, but the Fed looking to really support the investment grade bond market. And you can really see evidence of that. Spreads have really snapped back. Corporate bonds have rallied and the demand has come roaring back with this T-Mobile deal more than threefold oversubscribed. The other thing that I wanted to mention in terms of investor support, T-Mobile stock is one of the few that has actually had positive returns year to date. Obviously, we're in a pretty steep bear market here. The index down roughly, what, 25% recovered from its peak drop of 35%. But nonetheless, uh, T-Mobile stock hanging in there. And clearly, investors are liking this this consolidation, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the dynamics here, I mean, with this deal closing in in terms of the overall merger arb space is now that capital has to flow into other deals. And there was quite a bit of merger arb capital dedicated to this deal as it was a very, very popular transaction, although it did have its points in time where where it was quite unpopular and spreads really blew out. But you're seeing some of this capital flowing into some of the higher quality situations, which you know could be just be temporary, but could be a bit more longer lived. But you did see that um, in terms of the merger arb universe that we track, you did see it, it come in a few percentage points, which was interesting to note uh, as that capital does seem to stay within merger arb. The other aspect to this deal was that the the fact that it closed without receiving all of the regulatory approvals and it you know it really seems like you know both parties look weighed the risk of closing uh prior to all these final approvals 
being received and waiting longer to secure their financing for the transaction, as you had mentioned, the $18 billion in bond offering. Um, So there obviously was some financing risk to this deal that the parties thought that it would make a bit more, it looks like the parties thought that it would make a bit more sense to close without those final approvals, um, especially with T-Mobile. I mean, if you're looking at them, over 80% of their stores are closed now. So, you know, this, the COVID impact um, is certainly weighing on their operations, especially when you're trying to close both a transaction and a concurrent financing. But one thing I found interesting is, you know, I've never seen a situation where a deal actually closed without all the final regulatory approvals. And, you know, Julian, how, how common is it for, uh, for to, to see an actual deal close without receiving all these approvals? I think it's relatively uncommon, especially this type of approval. You typically see them wait until they get all of them and close up the deal with, with no risk. Although one uh, relatively recent was uh, AT&T Time Warner. I believe they closed it prior to uh, hearing any sort of appeal because that ran into some antitrust issues. AT&T won, and I believe they went ahead and closed the deal uh, prior to learning whether or not the government was going to appeal. Ultimately, the, the government, government did not appeal, so it didn't really matter anyway. But it, on this one, T-Mobile Sprint, they announced this two years ago. It took way longer than expected to close. So clearly, they're just really keen on executing here and want to get it done as quickly as possible. So definitely positive news uh, for ARBs involved, closing earlier than expected uh, with respect to the latest uh, closing guidance. You also mentioned the other interesting aspect is the notion of uh, recycling capital within the merger arbitrage space, because uh, certain deals, even though they're independent of other deals, they definitely do affect each other. If you have a lot of capital recycling from Sprint T-Mobile, that's got to find a home in other merger acqu- merger and acquisition uh, transactions, because you have merger ARB investors that need to put that capital work. They now have excess capital as this deal closes. So certainly you can see spreads tightening when something like this happens. And uh, the other point I want to make in terms of what happens in one certain M&A situation can have broad effects on spreads of other deals. Uh, In contrast to this closing is back in February when they got court approval and and Sprint stocks skyrocketed. There's actually a a large hedge fund that had a short position and their merge arbitrage desk, they reversed the spread, thought the deal would break and wanted to profit. If it did fall apart, a bad call on their part, suffered big losses, ended up firing the head of the desk, head of the merge arbitrage desk. And then in March, rapidly unwinding their whole or a large chunk of the merge arbitrage book, which the media reported that did perhaps contribute to the massive blowout in spreads that we saw in mid-March. No one really knows at this point. That's all just rumored, but that's something to consider Consider is these knock-on effects that one deal can have with respect to spreads on other deals. But to wrap up this segment, why is this transaction so important? We really just want to highlight that. Look, 
strategic deals continue to get done. They continue to close. Don't believe that all the panic in the market is going to prevent that. So that's really something to consider. Uh, in terms of tender offers that failed, SoftBank, the Japanese conglomerate, they pulled out of a proposed $3 billion tender offer for WeWork stock. Now, this was not a financing, but it was a deal that was supposed to cash out previous or current shareholders, mostly to the benefit of former CEO Adam Newman, uh, in which this tender offer was part of his exit package. Now, SoftBank, they blame their change of heart on certain conditions of the offer not being satisfied. This deal was initially hammered out in October as part of SoftBank's rescue for WeWork. As you recall from listening to our episodes of the podcast back from October, we talked about a lot about WeWork's rescue package and, and how uh, SoftBank uh, had to fund them after their failed IPO and they're left basically running out of money, teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. So co-founder, former CEO Newman, Adam Newman, ousted as part of the deal. He was actually set to sell up nearly $1 billion of shares in this $3 billion tender offer. And that in and of itself was quite controversial. He was getting this massive exit package, cashing in on a billion dollars of stock. While many people at the company, many employees were struggling, their options were underwater, they were getting fired. WeWork was desperately trying to cut, it ex cut its expenses. And um, really why they're pulling out on this deal, they cited a number of reasons. Uh, they indicated uh, WeWork's failure to receive antitrust approvals, the quote, multiple new and significant pending criminal and civil investigations. So a lot of bad stuff happening at WeWork. If we want to talk about corporate victims of COVID-19 in terms of businesses doing the worst, it's tough to find uh, a worse business than WeWork for this environment. They have this asset liability liquidity mismatch where they go out and sign these long-term leases and then rent it out on a short-term basis. But with everyone now working from home, they're stuck with these massive long-term leases and no near-term revenue as all their clients are now working from home. So certainly they're in an incredibly tough spot no surprise that SoftBank is pulling out on this deal. What are your thoughts on why they, they are reneging on it here? Yeah, and just specific to your your comments just now about their business model. I mean, that was the entirety of their business model would, was that they would grow to such a scale that they would become systemically important to the entire commercial real estate sector. Well, they're the number that. one tenant of Manhattan real estate, aren't they? Yes. And so like basically part of the downside or well, I guess the upside case um, was that even in an economic downturn was because they were because they were the largest tenant in New York, as well as some other major markets uh, globally, that they would have enough sway that they would be able to pressure landlords into relieving them of their obligations. But that that is something that really hasn't been done before. And so there really wasn't much of a roadmap. And, and, and it's based on some pretty dubious assumptions. But at the end of the day, like that, all that would help them is 
for them to lessen their obligations, it, it still wouldn't likely make them profitable. So it just lessened some of the downside was part of the bull case there. Um, but yeah, like I said, on dubious assumptions, really. But back to like the uh, this actual tender offer, um, as you had mentioned, like this was this was just optically really poor for both WeWork, the continuing company, and SoftBank. And after SoftBank announced that they were no longer going to uh, go through with this tender offer, their shares did increase as SoftBank has taken a ton of reputational damage over the last year, well, I guess really since fall of 2019 regarding their WeWork investment. And as well, because of that, once the once everybody was looking at their portfolio, there were a number of other portfolio stocks that were go, or private companies that were going down. So WeWork's really WeWork as well as SoftBank really taking a lot of reputational damage here. Um, among the other firms that would have been uh, benefiting from this tender offer uh, would be Benchmark Capital. I believe they would have represented some of the shares being tendered. But as SoftBank had mentioned, really only 10% of the tendered shares were going to go towards current employees. And with that, SoftBank has actually, I believe they're repricing some of the employee stock options that are just wildly underwater, which is just an obvious step to ensure that the employees running the company um, are still properly incentivized. But really, nothing nothing much more to say on this other than this is kind of... I, I don't think this story is over yet as Adam Newman still retains his shares. But SoftBank, I guess to go back as well, SoftBank already had a majority stake in the company. So this wasn't entirely necessary. They still do have control of the company. So um, Adam Newman is now a minority shareholder under the control of SoftBank at the end of the day. SoftBank has invested over $14 billion into WeWork. And as we indicated right from the start, this was just a really, really bad deal. Uh, not surprised at all that it's falling apart because it's really going to cash out Newman and Benchmark. Uh, doesn't affect WeWork, uh, the company, because it was uh, they weren't actually issuing any shares. So the company wasn't even going to see any proceeds from this. Clearly, this is going to go to litigation. These uh, companies going to battle this uh, in court. But it appears that SoftBank um, or, or WeWork just hasn't satisfied the conditions. So in terms of, of an acquirer um, pulling out of a tender offer, uh, it's in your right if the conditions are not satisfied. The other overarching theme here to, to consider is that WeWork had this really weird kind of techish profile just last year. They're going to uh, they're this massive growth company. Uh, they're going to IPO at $80 billion. That was a massive failure. Investors looked at their books and it was just a disaster. Their valuation came down 90% to $8 billion. And now this recession hit and their equity is actually looking uh, worthless. And that's why it's really tough to justify a $3 billion tender offer cashing out some rich people at a valuation uh, north of $10 billion. When you look at WeWork's publicly traded bonds, and they're trading at highly distressed levels, 37 cents on the dollar. That's where WeWork's bonds are trading. And when that, when a company's bonds are trading at 37 cents on the dollar, that implies that it's going to go bankrupt, the equity is going to be worthless, and the bonds are likely going to be highly impaired, such that you're not going to make back much of your investment, even on the debt side of of the uh, of the company. So, WeWork highly distressed, 
they require likely another rescue in this environment. Bonds implying bankruptcy, tender fell apart. It's a bad situation, but ultimately doesn't make sense for SoftBank to continue throwing good money after bad. So we'll see where this one goes, but certainly interesting litigation. This is where the lawyers take over and make all their money. So we're going to leave it at that. Another deal that fell apart, Xerox. And we talked about this deal in the past. What this Xerox HP situation was, Xerox went hostile with the backing of Carl Icahn to try to acquire HP. And the really interesting aspect and the reason we gave this such low odds prior to the whole pandemic and recession coming was that HP was roughly fourfold the size of Xerox. So that right there is a massive hurdle to clear when Xerox was $7 billion and this was like a $30 billion acquisition. We called it the minnow trying to swallow the whale, which is even in the best of markets is an incredibly difficult thing to do. So Xerox, they launched a hostile tender offer. They also launched a, um, a concurrent proxy battle to try to replace HP's board of directors because HP's board of directors just said, you know, we don't want any piece of this deal. It's a bad deal. Using way too much leverage, it does not make sense. So Xerox officially pulled the plug on this whole long shot hostile takeover of rival HP this week. They stated that the pursuit of this highly leveraged transaction was not prudent given the pandemic and the resulting bear market. Clearly, you know, their financing might have been uh, affected, but really no appetite for investor for this type of transaction. Talking about some price action, HP shares down 15% this week. But when we previously talked about it, we always viewed it as pretty much a long shot market pricing and pretty low expectations and really just wanting to communicate to investors that this deal falling apart is not indicative of what you should affect from the broad M&A market in this environment. It's really not reflective of the increased risks due to COVID-19. Clearly that had an effect, but we always thought that this deal stood a low chance irrespective of the current recession before that even happened. And we had market at all-time high valuations and in January and February, it still looked uh, highly unlikely just given the, uh, the dynamics, the extreme leverage and the resistance from HP's board of directors. What are your thoughts on um, you know, what's happening on uh, Xerox? and HP, which with respect to a post-mortem, now that it's officially been called off. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the distinguishing between uh, the Xerox HP transaction and higher quality transactions that are in the market right now in the merger arm space, as well as I guess we should clarify uh, for some of our listeners with the SoftBank WeWork transaction. WeWork is a private company, so that wouldn't that tender offer, you know, that's not something that would be on the radar of any merger arms. So not really relevant to merger arms, just something interesting in the overall investment world. But that's the thing is that in in a market like this, it would be very interesting if high quality deals, deals that were trading, you know, at at narrower spreads, if those were breaking, then that would be a lot more cause for concern. But a very speculative deal that um, in all of our discussions on the podcast about this deal, we really just talked about how little, how low of a probability that it would be for this transaction to close in its current form. Even at the end of the day, like if you take out the risk of the external financing that Xerox was looking for and had come to terms with, at the end of the 
day HP at that time, their comments were just that the consideration offered at $24 a share just wasn't properly valuing HP. Now, the fact that HP has now traded down to under $15, that's not really, you know, it's not really fair to say that they would be happy to have that $24 now. But really, at the end of the day, like as to, to summarize, this was very a very speculative deal, not indicative of the overall merger arm space. If you had one of those A-plus deals, I would be a lot more worried about the space. Yeah, that makes sense. And I wanted to chat finally about... The other side of a coin, a deal that isn't M&A, but at restructuring. So what we had was U.S. shale oil producer Whiting Petroleum. They filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, really just dealing with the plummeting oil price. They had too much debt. And with WTI oil prices just crashing, they could no longer really meet their obligations. Whiting was actually once the largest producer, largest oil producer in North Dakota. So big into the Bakken trend there. What they're looking to seek in this Chapter 11 bankruptcy, uh, they're not liquidating or anything. It's, it's just a reorganization, a restructuring of the company. So a different type of deal. We typically talk about um, mergers and acquisitions, uh, merger arbitrage, but there's a different aspect back to um, investing that involves uh, distressed debt investing. And there's a lot of firms that specialize in buying the bonds of bankrupt companies. And this is really where uh, that comes into play. And where, in my opinion, this is just a start of a massive distressed debt investing cycle, kind of what like what we saw coming out of 2008, 2009. You see a lot of companies go bankrupt, reorganize in court, and they look to swap debt for equity. What Whiting's looking to do in their Chapter 11 filing is basically convert $2.2 billion in debt, convert that into equity. As of December 31st, they had $2.8 billion in debt and about half a billion in cash. So they're looking to convert most of the debt on their balance sheet, reduce those obligations, convert it to equity, give bondholders equity ownership in the in the pro forma reorganized entity. Uh, you, you're wondering why this company ended up with so much debt. Well, it was from an M&A deal. They bought Kodiak Oil & Gas, which was a public oil and gas producer in mid-2014, paying $6 billion. That included $2.2 billion in debt. Unfortunate timing on that one. That was right before the 2015 oil crash. And oil producers really have not been able to recover from that one. They've basically been continuously kicked in the teeth. And in 2020, it's just gotten bad. It's just gotten so much worse for oil producers. So I don't think this is going to be the only oil producer, large oil producer filing for bankruptcy. I think uh, Whiting Petroleum just one of many dominoes to fall here. Uh, some price action. Whiting stock hit 37 cents. You might be wondering, you know, why is their stock not zero? I thought bankrupt company's stock goes to zero. Well, in the current proposed bankruptcy Current shareholders, uh, if you look at stock WLL, they actually could end up with something, um, ownership of 3% of the pro forma post-reorganization equity. So there could be some value for equity holders here, but I mean, it's just a penny stock for now. We were short the stock in the past, but no longer short. We we covered uh, a number of weeks ago as it drifted lower into a penny stock. It's really tough to short stocks lower than a dollar. So it really shows short sellers the benefit of having short sellers because when the stock when a company's going bankrupt and long investors want to exit 
at something higher than zero, that's where short sellers are typically covering their short and giving some sort of a price consideration to long investors wanting to exit. Whiting was once as large as $15 billion market cap. That's shriveled to as low as $30 million. Really, the stock's been absolutely demolished over the past kind of five years. What are your thoughts on this uh, bankruptcy filing? Think that we're going to see more coming out of the oil space with this massive uh, crash and the entire uh, this bear market that's really you know, effective, uh, affected the oil space kind of it's been like a five-year thing that has just gotten substantially worse and never better yeah bear markets such as these really really show some of the bad corporate governance as well as highlight some of the good corporate governance in companies but for the most part highlight the bad and so th- in this situation there this was one of the more egregious things that I've seen is that days before, they and filed for bankruptcy, their board actually approved a $14.6 million in cash bonuses for their top executives. I believe about six and a half million of that went directly to the CEO. And then the rest was split amongst five other executives. <laughs> and like that, that's an absolute like scumbag move. Oh, just disgusting. And, Companies yeah, bankrupt, people are losing their jobs. Uh, and the people responsible for driving it into bankruptcies, bank- bankruptcy, shareholders losing pretty much everything, bondholders going to get hosed. The people responsible are getting richly rewarded. I mean, $14 million in bonuses to what, five or six people responsible for doing that? Should they win the lottery for such, you know, incredibly bad performance? It just makes me sick. Yeah, it's just really like breaking the windows on the way out of the store. Like, I I will note now this is the sarcasm is just seeping from me right now. But I will note that the executives did forfeit their equity awards (laughs) they were in line to receive uh, at the same time as they received this cash bonus. So these equity awards that are worth absolutely nothing, yeah. they, uh, they, they, they did uh, forfeit those. So that's uh, a pretty great move of them. Uh, I do have a direct quote as usually I don't like doing direct quotes from companies, but this is just laughable. Uh, the company did say it was intended to ensure the stability and continuity of the company's workforce and eliminate any potential misalignment of interests that would likely arise if existing performance metrics were retained. (laughs) So, yeah, very, very interesting messaging from the company. I did want to focus a little bit more on bad corporate governance, as we do have one example that hits a little bit closer to home, Encana, which uh, re-domiciled into the U.S. and changed their name into Ovinative, which I will disclose that we are... Uh, short the company. Uh, but Eric Nuttall of Nine Point Partners, a fund manager for a small and mid-cap energy fund, uh, pointed out this was on March 25th uh, that Ovinative CEO actually got a 6% total compensation increase despite their stock falling 86% year to date, which is absolutely ridiculous to be getting an increase at, at a time like that. While also, uh, he also brought to light the fact that their CEO only had about 90,000 shares that he he held himself. And at that, at their share price, which I believe is 
sub four dollars, um, makes up a few hundred thousand dollars. Where his total compensation, I believe, was around twelve million dollars, which was um, including that six percent increase. So just that you know, his yearly compensation being in the twelve million dollar range really not at all aligned with shareholders. Um, where you compare that to, say, Canadian Natural Resources, a Calgary-based company that has actually cut their CEO's salary 20%, um, where they were also making cuts to the salaries of their frontline workers as well, uh, but their CEO did take a higher cut, which optically is just a lot better solution. Um, and lastly, sticking out, moving outside of the energy industry, just on a little bit of corporate governance, uh, not only just corporate governance, it seems to be outright fraud, where Luckin Coffee, which um, was a popular company, they were they were competing with Starbucks in China, and they IPO'd in a very, there was much fanfare to their IPO in March of 2019. But basically what happened here was that about over $300 million worth of their sales were fabricated last year, which works out to about 40% of their annual sales. Yeah, massive fraud. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like this is the biggest biggest stock fraud that I've seen in the Chinese market um, as their market cap topped out around, I believe it was $12 billion USD. Uh, the company announcing that shareholder, that investors should no longer rely upon their previous financial statements. Just an absolute disaster. And I guess bringing light to this, this fraud were a few firms being this was, I believe, a couple of months ago when Muddy Waters came out with their it was an anonymous short report, but it was later confirmed that it came through Muddy Waters a activist short seller, where they called into question, they brought out, brought up outright fraud, as well as bringing into question the, the overall unit economics of their business as not having been a customer. But I guess they do use very aggressive discounting strategies, where many customers described never having paid full price for a coffee there. Um, so really just an unsustainable business model, plus a fraud, which is a short seller's absolute dream. So the shares are down 90% from their high of around $50 per share. It IPO just in March of 2019, so really only a year old, at $17. At just over $5 now, looks like it should be a zero, but is, uh, you know, it's that is the difficulty where on the way down as a short seller, there can be some dead cap bounces as the stock does go to zero. And I believe uh, Jim Chanos was also short the stock and along with Muddy Waters. Um, and he was on CNBC, I believe it was this past week, saying that he's already covered his short. So it looks like the shorts have already got out on the 90 percent drawdown. Yeah, and the thing to consider, they actually tricked a lot of smart investors, a lot of smart investors on the shareholder register on Luck and Coffee. But with respect to corporate governance, I mean, I can wax poetic all day on poor corporate governance. It's something that investors should really consider, you know, when considering buying or, or shorting a stock. But I, dig I digress on that. Basically, if there's poor, like this, these egregious executive compensation, you can't own a stock like that. 
like you said, were short, inventive, uh, horrible corporate governance, uh, egregious executive comp for incredibly poor operating performance. That's something you definitely don't want to see as a long-only investor. And it's a, it's a great sign if you're a short seller. I mean, that's a, that's a great indicator of future share price performance. And you also mentioned on the opposite end of the spectrum, Canadian Natural, CNQ, a stock, a stock that we got to disclose that we are long, a stock that has good corporate governance, great operating performance. And as I indicated, investors got to be aware that corporate governance, executive compensation, all these things have, have decent predictive ability of future share price performance. So take that into account when evaluating securities for your portfolio. With that said, that wraps it up for episode 61 of the Absolute Return Podcast. If you liked it, you can check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. You can check us out on Twitter, my handle's at Julian Klamochko, K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O. And Mike, your handle is? It is M underscore Kesslering. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-I-N-G. And that's it, ladies and gents. We hope you have a great week in your investing and trading. And until next week, we'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.